We'll dismiss our children to children's ministry out the back there. And if you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We've been talking about relationships for the past several weeks, and we're going to do that again today. We're, one of the main questions we're going to ask today is what the resurrection does to human relationships. That's it's going to be a part of our conversation today. And uh, I, I hope that you'll benefit from it. One of, the, one of the things that I realized is sort of a perk of being a pastor is if, if, if you love stories, and I love stories, you just get to collect all sorts of great stories. Some, some not great stories, but a lot of great stories. And over the years of pastoring, I've gotten to know these stories in certain categories. There's commonalities to certain stories. And one of the stories I hear time and time again as a pastor is the story of a child growing up in a chaotic home who on his or her own finds a local church. And there's this sweetness that happens in this story. I know two women in our church, I'm married to one of them, who had that experience as little girls. They grew up in homes that were overseen by a single mother who herself was broken and struggling to, to just sort of maintain, even maintain. And these stories often involve a lot of moving around, uh, moving from one town to another, moving from one boyfriend's house to another. And that's the other thing these stories often have a lot in common is that, that a lot of times these stories involve multiple uh, men coming into the home over a period of years, maybe, maybe one every year, maybe even more than that. And these stories have so much in common, but the sweet piece that I hear so often is that improbably, in some way, that can only be attributed to a miracle of God, these children escape that chaos and find peace and order in the church, often by themselves. So that in whatever way that happens, they, they, they leave the chaos of that ungoverned home or that home that is full of darkness and they wander into a little church down the street. Maybe it's through vacation Bible school or a Christmas pageant. And these little kids living in darkness and chaos walk into a place where people are making bird feeders and singing songs about Zacchaeus and Abraham and making crosses out of popsicle sticks. And when you talk to these little girls who are now women about these experiences, it, they, they, were, they were transformational. They they were the difference-making experiences in their lives. This place of order found in the midst of a life of chaos. And one of the commonalities to the story is the, the absurdity to them that there were adults just down the street who were generous and happy and at peace. And how, like, at this place called the church, nobody counted the graham crackers. Like you, could have, you could have as many graham crackers as you want. Or nobody counted the popsicle sticks. You could make 12 popsicle crosses if you want. There was this, this joy and this generosity that, that is common to this story. And that's what allows these little girls to pivot out of a life that certainly would have been repeated if some order hadn't brought in, been brought into their lives somewhere else. Well, <laughs> that's what everybody here should want to be for someone else. I'm not going to suggest that's a successful life. I'm going to tell you 
That's what you should use as your definition of a successful life. The goal of your life ought to be quite simply this, to be that order for someone else in chaos, to be that peace, to be that generous place for someone else. And the truth is, is it's not just little girls from, from broken homes that need that. The world is full of people who need to wander into our lives and find there a generosity and a gladness that is the transformational moment in their life. It, it, it redirects where the trajectory of their life was headed. So I'll just tell you point blank, like, that's what you should want. That's what I should want. That's a successful life. And furthermore, what you'll find is that the first time you're able to do that, the Lord allows you to do that for somebody else. You kind of set up your life in order to help that person. And then you've sort of accidentally, just in reaction to helping this person, you've sort of accidentally rearranged and re-engineered your own life. So now you have a structure for your life and a purpose for your life. And then God brings more people like that into your life. And before you know it, you're 80 and ready to go see Jesus, and you've lived a good life. Like, that's, that's what a successful life is. That's what we should all want to be. We should all want to be what those churches were for those little girls. And so the question this morning is simply, how, how does that happen? How do we become glad and generous people? Now, I've got the perfect text for it. Uh, it's perfect for two reasons. Let me show you the text first. Uh, Acts 2, verse 44. It's perfect for one reason, because it just describes a group of people who are, who are this. I mean, this is, this is what these girls experienced in their own way in these little churches that they wandered into. Verse 44 of Acts 2. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Then they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's helpful. This text is helpful because, I mean, it like actually describes the very thing I'm getting at when I tell you the story of these little girls. But it's also helpful for another really cool reason. And that is, at the beginning of the chapter, these same people weren't glad and generous. So, so that's really helpful because now we have a before and after and we can look at, okay, these people weren't this a minute ago. Now they are this. Whatever's happening in the middle of the story is what made them this, right? So we can actually look to the text and see what actually changes people from not being glad and generous people into becoming glad and generous people. And, and that's what we're going to do today and next week. Uh, there, there are eight uh, transformational truths these people encounter. And to this today and next week, we're going to look at four each. Today we'll look at four. Next week we'll look at four. We're going to see what changed these people into glad and generous people. And what I'm going to do um, is just go through the four that we're going to look at today. And I'm just going to basically just show them to you in the text. And then I'm going to go back through and ask, how do these truths make us glad and generous? Okay, so, so first, I'm just going to show them to you in the text, and then I'm going to go back and ask, well, how do these things actually make glad and generous people? The first truth that I see them encountering is what I'm just describing or calling the revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus. In verse 22, Peter tells these people, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through them in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So when I say the revelation of Jesus, what I mean is these folks all knew who Jesus was. He had caused quite a stir in their community, indeed in the whole country. They knew the name Jesus, but in this encounter through Peter's sermon, Jesus has revealed to their hearts to be far much more than what they thought they knew. Um, They came to understand, one of the things that transformed them was they came to understand that this Jesus who was crucified about 50 days before was God. And that had a million implications, one of them being that God gave himself as a gift to humanity and suffered and died as a criminal to save his enemies. So that's the revelation of Jesus. Uh, Number two, second transformational truth. That sounds like a really hokey uh, self-improvement book, doesn't it? Eight transformational truths. Uh, But the second one is, I don't know what else to call it. The second one is repentance for killing Jesus. Number two, repentance for killing Jesus. Twice in Peter's sermon, he is sure to let these folks know that they themselves are personally responsible for the death of Jesus. Uh, He says that in verse 23. He says it again in verse 36. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Revelation of Jesus, God came to earth. Repentance for killing Jesus, you killed him. He lets them know Jesus came to earth as God. Jesus is God. You killed him. And here their response is surprising. Because in a, in a literal way, very few of the individuals in that crowd held a hammer, none of them, right? And, 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 and very few of them had direct action that caused the death of Jesus. And so you would expect when being uh, told, like, you killed Jesus, that this group of people would be like, uh, no, I didn't. That's, that's not true. I, I didn't kill Jesus. I mean, Jesus was killed, but, but, but I didn't do that. But instead of that blame shifting, you see them accepting responsibility. Look at verse uh, 37. Peter just said, you you killed him. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So there's a a repentance for killing Jesus, even though they themselves were not physically the ones who killed him. We'll we'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, Number three, redemption of Jesus. The redemption of Jesus. So that's in verses uh, 20. 38 and 39 again. So so, so they're carrying this massive weight. They have accepted responsibility for killing God. God came to earth, they killed him, and there's this massive weight. They're cut to the heart, the text says, and they cry out to Peter, what must we do? And Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, so this third point, redemption of Jesus, just, just implies this. It, it, it is this. Their great guilt is met with a greater grace. So that's, the, that's the third thing happening here. Their great guilt for crucifying Christ is met with a greater grace as they are extended, quite undeservedly, forgiveness for that great crime. And number four, the resurrection of Jesus. Just as Peter had twice told them that they killed Jesus, Peter also states twice that their murderous rage against Jesus was not the last word of the story. Both in verse 24 and verse 32, Peter lets them know, this Jesus whom you crucified has been raised again. So those are the four truths that they encountered. There's four more we'll look at next week. I hope you'll come back. But, but how do these four truths that they encountered change them and affect their relationships? How do these things make them glad and generous? Well, let's talk about, let's just talk. Let's just talk about the revelation of Jesus. What, why does that make a person glad and generous? Like, what's going on there? How does, how does that actually affect a person? Well, what we're going to see is that all of these people had some concept of God and some concept of Jesus before all of this. But that their concept of God and Jesus beforehand wasn't making them glad and generous. And then something changed. Their, their concepts were clarified. The, the light of the face of Jesus shone in glory on them, and, and they saw a whole new level of the reality of God. So how does this revelation of Jesus do that? Well, beforehand, let's talk about gratitude. Beforehand, uh, and generosity, they had a concept of generosity. They were gathered for the Feast of the Pentecost, which is what? It's a harvest festival. I mean, like they're literally celebrating their concept of God's generosity. And that concept of God's generosity is common to what most people think of. If I were to say, how has God been generous or how has God been good? You would list things that he's done. And fundamentally, the Harvest Festival is a celebration of stuff that God did. Like he brought rain and he gave sun. And so we're celebrating the harvest and we're celebrating God's generosity for bringing rain and sun. But now this new information that Jesus is God and that he came to earth implies a whole new level of generosity. Because now we're not talking about a God who gives us rain and sun only, but also a God who gives us his actual son. And so the, 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 the understanding of God's generosity is radically redefined by this understanding that Jesus was given by God. And it does some practical things to us in our understanding of generosity. Generosity, because of the gospel, gets redefined as the giving of oneself. That's, that's, that's the functional definition for the Christ follower of what generosity means. It, it, it doesn't mean any longer like giving your stuff, although your stuff may be a part of what it means to give yourself. But, but generosity for the Christ follower has a new definition altogether, and that is the giving of oneself. The giving of Jesus by giving oneself, perhaps. 
So that's a massive shift in our understanding of generosity because it's actually relatively easy to scrape off the excess of the things in our lives into the poor box, right? It's a relatively easy thing to cut the cream off the top and say, here you need some, here you need some, and so forth. But this whole idea that generosity exceeds that and means actually the giving of oneself as demonstrated by God giving himself for us, that's a profoundly different deal. To, to illustrate this, I'm going to tell you this story, uh, and, and I, I love this story. I'm so thankful that it happened the way it did. So, so we had a, a man in our life who was uh, an alcoholic, and he was also addicted to pain pills, and, uh, and it was further complicated by the fact that he actually did have some physical pains that needed to be dealt with, but he was really, really profoundly uh, addicted to alcohol and drugs. He'd been an alcoholic since the age of nine um, again, through a broken parent who thought it would be funny to see his nine-year-old son drunk. And uh, this guy was in our life, and sometimes he would come to our church, and a lot of times he wouldn't. And usually when he came to church, he would sleep and snore really loudly. And uh, someone would have to wake him up so he'd stop snoring so loud. And uh, we were happy to have him. And, and one night, um, not to be I don't want to go TMI, but one night the kids were gone. Ange and I were home alone. It was 10 p.m. and we had plans. They were good plans. And uh, uh, 10 p.m., plans have been made. And um, uh, I see a phone call from this gentleman come across my phone. And like any good pastor, just so you know, and any good husband, I did not answer the phone. Uh, so, so I, I, I was okay with that. I thought, you know, I certainly can deal with this tomorrow. It's 10 p.m. after all. I have plans, etc. And um, uh, he calls again. And, and, and given the nature of his addiction and the nature of just the general instability of his life, I just I couldn't find peace in not answering the phone. Like, he called twice, so I answered the phone. And he said, I need to talk to you. And I said, you got me. What's up? And I'm doing my best to help him with boundaries, right? We've talked about boundaries before. Boundaries here are like, it's 10 p.m. Tell me what you need to tell me on the phone. And uh, he says, I want to see you in person. And uh, I thought, I actually said, are you sure we can't talk over the phone? He's like, no, I got to see you in person. And so uh, I said uh, to my wife, like, I think I can be back. He's, the guy lives close. I think I can be back in an hour. If you want to wait up, fine. If you don't, fine. But I feel like I've got to go talk to this guy. And so I tell the guy, like, let me go pick you up at your apartment complex, and we'll go get a Coke, and we'll talk, and then I'll drop you off. I, w- I kind of wanted to have control over the timing of the whole thing. Oh, look, we're back at your apartment. Uh, guess it's time to go. And so I, I, I pick him up. Uh, at his apartment, and he gets in my car, and it's clear that he's not at all sober. And uh, he begins to tell me what he wanted to tell me after we get our Cokes. And what he wanted to tell me was that his disability pay got doubled and that he was so thankful to God that his disability pay got doubled. He was so excited. Now, at that time, our church was really struggling, and and, uh, I did some quick math in my head and realized he was making more than me. and uh, and so I'm talking to him, and I'm working through this, and I'm 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 
I'm kind of encouraging him and praising God with him and so forth. And, and uh, I look at my watch, it's already 11.15. Well, like my wife has a definite expiration date. So, so like she gets, that's, that's, that's too late. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, that's, that's over. So uh, I, I keep talking to him for a little bit longer and I think we're about wrapped up. And he says, obviously not sober, he says, can we go buy some fish for my aquarium? And I said, I don't think that any place is open to buy fish for, uh, for your aquarium. And he said, Walmart is, I called. It, it becomes clear to me at some point there that this was all about getting the fish. <laughs> that this was the whole point of this evening was in an in a intoxicated state, that the idea of getting fish was really awesome, and he wanted to get some fish, and he didn't have a car, and so I was going to help him get fish. And so, you know, I had this moment where I had to decide, like, where do I draw the line? And do not model my, my decision. Don't, don't do it. Like, but I'm, I'm always one for a good story. So I said, why not? Let's go. Let's go to Walmart at midnight and buy some fish. As we're driving to Walmart, we, I the, further clarified that he wants sharks. He doesn't want fish. He wants sharks. And I'm uh, like, I don't think that Walmart has sharks. And he's like, they do. I called. And so we go into Walmart and we walk to the back of Walmart, and there's all the fish tanks. Now, I don't know, like, all the event circ- life circumstances that cause a man to wind up being employed by Walmart to work the fish shift at, at midnight, but there was a dude there. I'm not sure he was sober either, there to scoop out our fish, our sharks, our baby sharks. And so he scoops out the baby sharks, and one of them falls on the ground, and it breaks in half. Like, it doesn't, like, break. Into, like, it's just broken, you know? It's, like, fractured. And I said, well, I don't think we want this one. So even then, look at how amazing of a pastor I am. I'm doing quality control on his sharks for him. Anyway, so, so uh, I said, I don't think we want this one. The dude, who I, I also don't think is sober, the fish dude, he picks it up and snaps it back into place and drops it in the bag. And it's like, there you go. So he fixed it. And, uh, and we get our sharks. And we go back home. And I drop him off at his apartment. And he's walking up the stairs leaning heavily on the rail with a bag full of sharks. And uh, I drove home, drive home. It's almost 1 o'clock. And I break out laughing because I realize he's far too intoxicated to remember any of this. And in the morning, he's going to say, where in the world did these sharks come from? There's a sense in which you never know. Once you redefine generosity as the giving of oneself, once you, once you make that change... Life becomes an adventure. (laughs) And the truth is, is that guy did remember it, and he did feel loved. And a guy who was alone all the time in his apartment needs to just go sometimes and have an adventure with another dude. And it was a blessing to him. So how does our life change when we realize that Jesus gave himself that that's the basic function of, that's the basic definition of generosity. We have not just the, the rule now that we should give ourselves, but we have like him giving himself to us. And Romans 8.32 says that he who gave his own son for us, how will he not also freely give us all things? And there's this richness and generosity that takes resident in our hearts. And it's not from us. And it wasn't Chris's goodness at Walmart. I'm not sure it even was a good idea, but it was not my goodness if it was a good idea at Walmart at midnight. It was the Lord Jesus giving himself through an instrument. 
So, so that's, that's one way that this, these, these truths change us. It's not just that they're rules. It's that the, like the thing actually happens to us and transforms us. That's why I, I, I chose the hokey term, transformational truth. It's, it's something that's taking up residence inside of us. So what about repentance for killing Jesus? Like, what does that do for our relationships? Well, I mean, before these people had a concept of sin, they were what the Bible describes as reverent, uh, devout rather, and uh, they had some sense of sin. They knew the Ten Commandments, and so they probably had some sense of general guilt for lying or for stealing, whatnot. But this new experience with the gospel showed them that their guilt ran much deeper, that they were actually responsible for killing Jesus. Uh, it's an interesting test, a little psychological experiment. Like, Just take a moment in silence and say to yourself in your own head, I killed Jesus, and see what that does for you. I killed Jesus. You know, there's this, I think there's a kind of person who really, really bucks against that. And then I think there's the kind of person who knows deep down that even though there's no possible way they were even there, that there's a truth there to that statement. So there's two kinds of people, generally speaking. Those who look back at history and assume they'd always be on the right side of it. And those who, uh, who those kinds of people look back at history and say, there's no way I'd ever be a Nazi. Right? There's no way I would ever be a Nazi. There's no way I'd ever be a guard at a concentration camp. That kind of person reads history, but is not instructed by it in any way. They simply use past evil as an opportunity to affirm their own sense of self-righteousness. But there's another group of people who look back in history and say, I don't know, because I am capable of some really lousy decisions. I am capable of being self-deceived. I am capable of violence and anger and hatred. I, I am capable of profound historic levels of cowardice. Which one of those two people would you want to have conflict with? Would you want to have conflict? Because I mean, we're going to have conflict with each other in our relationships. Would you want to have conflict with someone who, who looks back at history and always assumes they'd be on the right side of it? Or would you want to have conflict with someone who, who, who has been instructed in the ways of humility and says, you know, I, I have enough self-doubt about my own motives, about my own uh, rightness, that I'm not so sure I would be on the right side of history. Well, these people, as I believe all Christians must, came to believe that if they were personally responsible for driving a nail in the hand of Jesus, they would have done so. That transformational humility affects the way you see yourself moving forward. You do not assume, within the context of your relationships, that you are for sure right. And that you're not possibly self-deceived. Or they're not possibly motivated simply by a desire to win, rather than a desire for reconciliation. There's a kind of humility that comes to the believer that is unique because the believer uniquely accepts his role in the death of Jesus. It's sort of like admit that and you're admitted into the church. Don't admit that and you can show up every Sunday if you want, but you're not a part of what is actually happening here. Because what this is fundamentally is a group of people who believe they are the chief of sinners 
a people capable of both hypothetical and real malevolence and self-deception and cowardice. And when a person owns that and they become convinced that that is true of them, that those things are possible for them, indeed more than possible, the way they maneuver in their personal relationships is decidedly humble. So that's one way that the repentance of Jesus, uh, repentance for killing Jesus would affect us at the relational level. What about redemption of Jesus? Um, I was reading, uh, I want to talk, I want to talk for a minute about the power of unfairness, the power of unfairness and how it, how it really sets the trajectory of our lives. I was reading this neuroscience experiment related to unfairness. They, they put two subjects in a room at a table. They, they said, you're going to play a game called ultimatum player. A, we're going to hand you a $20 bill or a $50 bill or whatever money, uh, of some amount. And you must offer player B, what you think is a fair share of that money. And, uh, and, and player B can either accept what is offered or just reject it. And if player B rejects what's offered, nobody gets any money. So there's a motivation for player A to offer an amount big enough for player B to be satisfied. There's a motivation for player B to accept because if, because there's no negotiation, there's a, there's a motivation for player B to accept like a low amount because like, well, I just want something, something's better than nothing. But what they found is that if anything less than 30% was offered, they had the, the participants wired up into brain scans. And what they found is that if anything less than 30% was offered, the player B's brain would light up in the anterior insula. It's part of the brain that's actually associated with bad smells and, and, and disgust reactions and contempt. So that there was this physical effect that unfairness had on the person. If they perceived something to be unfair, they were negatively affected physically. This is the part of the brain that's overactive in people that struggle with depression. And researchers have basically decided like that, that one primary motivation, one primary thought that depressed people need to get rid of is that they have been unfairly treated because it causes this repeated injury or uh, elevation of this part of the brain, and we don't want this part of the brain to be working overtime. So here's the deal. Many relationships are defined by cont- contempt and disgust and resentment because the person believes they have been unfairly treated by another. And so that unfairness, though it's kind of like, it sounds like a playground word, it actually has like this huge part of defining our happiness. This sense of like, I have been treated unfairly. And the more we dwell on this sense of being treated unfairly, the more negatively we're affected. But there's another kind of unfairness. I've been talking about a negative unfairness. But there's another kind of unfairness, and that's unfair kindness. Undeserved mercy. Like a kind of unfairness that is sweet and satisfying and emotionally compelling. And and the people in Acts 2 owned their great guilt for killing Jesus, and they were met with that great guilt with a greater grace. Their life was defined by the opposite of unfairness. It's it's the or the right kind of unfairness. And so this, so you've got the kind of people who sort of are always looking for how they were treated badly, always looking for how they were slighted, always looking for a reason to be resentful toward others. And then you've got another person who's saying, the only compelling 
bit of unfairness I've ever experienced that really is big is that I was unfairly forgiven. I was unfairly given mercy. A lot of people who wander away from God do so based on this this psychosomatic connection between unfairness. They see their mom die of cancer and mom's a, a believer and mom's walking with Jesus and people are praying for her and she dies anyway. And so the 15-year-old or the 17-year-old boy watches this and says, there is no God. Look at how unfairly she's been treated. And they can't get an answer to these questions about why God hasn't been fair. These people were on the complete opposite side of that spectrum because the only question they couldn't answer related to God's fairness is, why would you save me? Now, again, just as I said, there's sort of these two, these, these two polar opposites in terms of people who look back at history and they're either instructed about it or they're self-assured in their righteousness. It's the same here. There's this polar opposite of like a group of people who are constantly hounded by their feelings of, of the world being unfair, of people being unfair, of things being unfair, of God being unfair. And then there's a group of people who have this one big, massive, unanswerable question that dominates their whole lives, and that is, why would God save me? So their great guilt was met with a greater grace, and that sort of positive unfairness define their lives in a very profound way. So what about the resurrection of Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you three quick implications. The two of them are just going to involve a sentence. What are the resurrection, what does the resurrection of Jesus do to relationships? Well, here's one thing. If you have been mightily sinned against, abused, left, treated poorly, you need to understand that one of the things the, resignation, the resurrection teaches us is that man's sin against me is not the last word of my story. That's a basic truth of the resurrection. Peter twice says, you killed Jesus, and twice says, it didn't work. Your evil actions were not the last word in the life of Jesus, and so it is for all those who are in Christ your evil actions, or the actions committed against you, rather, are not the last word or the defining word for you. God's power, God's truth, God's grace, God's life is the defining word for everyone who's been hurt by evil and cruelty. The second implication is this. You could be in a relationship you believe is beyond saving. Jesus was in a relationship that appeared to have been entirely broken. It was not. Through the resurrection, you can understand that God gives breathing life into broken things. And whatever shape that resurrection takes, and it may only be spiritual or it may be more than that, you can have certainty that God raises up dead things. But I really want to dwell on, on, on this third implication of the resurrection there's this sense in which man was responsible for the death of Jesus, and there's a sense in which God was. Uh, verse 24 of Acts 2 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, so there's a sense in which we understand, I hope you understand, that uh, Jesus went to the cross willingly. He wasn't tricked. 
He wasn't bound against his will. He had the power at any moment to not die, to not give himself up. Jesus was sent to the cross by the Father willingly. The Spirit empowered Jesus to obey so that God himself, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, were ultimately the actors in the crucifixion. So what does that have to do with glad and generous hearts? Well, every time God calls you to give yourself, he's calling you to repeat in a little miniature model what Jesus did on the cross, what God did on the cross. Every time God calls you to to give up time that you can't give back, to give up resources you could use elsewhere, to give up emotional energy that you aren't sure you have to give, to one degree or another, that's all just a voluntarily emptying of yourself. That's like what we said, right? Generosity is giving yourself. So, so even if you are giving stuff, it's still like you're giving yourself. But it's important that you understand this morning that that's exactly what God did. At the cross, he, he emptied himself. He gave of himself. Psalm 126 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for, showing, for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, there are a million ways that's true. And it's a psalm that these people who were celebrating the Harvest Festival would have known and celebrated. He who goes sowing in tears, sowing is hard work. Breaking up the ground is hard work. Praying that it'll take root is hard work. There's all this uncertainty. There's all of this risk, agriculturally speaking. So this psalm is true in various levels, but it's most true and it's ultimately fulfilled in the cross work of Jesus Christ. Because what's happening at the cross is Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are sowing in tears. They're sowing themselves. They're giving themselves so that their enemies might be redeemed. So that their enemies' great guilt could be met with a greater grace. Like, that's what's happening most of all in Psalm 126. It's a picture of the cross. And it's also a picture of the resurrection. Because those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. Jesus was the seed. Shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so what we need to see about the cross is that it's the ultimate act of sowing and reaping. It's the place where God gave himself in tears. Emptied himself out. True generosity. But that because of the justice and holiness and goodness of God... You don't sow in tears and reap nothing. When you sow in tears, you reap in joy. And what we see in the crucifixion and the resurrection is that very thing. The God who sowed himself in tears is now bursting forth from the tomb in joy. And he is going home in gladness and shouts of joy. And he's bringing his sheaves with him. I told you earlier that the Pentecost was a harvest festival. This thing had gone on. For a long time, lots of harvest festivals, lots of Pentecost had been celebrated in the history of Israel. But this one was God's. This was God's harvest festival. 
This was him bringing in the sheaves of joy. Those 3,000 souls who were saved and those who were added to their number day by day. Like this is God's harvest festival that we see in Acts 2. And it's all rooted in the fact that Jesus laid himself down and died like a seed and was raised. And that thing that raised, that life, that energy, that power, takes up residence in the heart of those who know Christ and have been saved by him so that this generosity thing is like actually happening on the inside out. And we become people with glad and generous hearts. Because the resurrection, the crucifixion, resurrection drama is happening over and over and over and over again in our souls. And we can be those kinds of people like those little churches were to those little girls in the midst of their darkness and their chaos and their uncertainty. Like we can be that because that's who Christ is. Those two girls I spoke about earlier one of the sad things they had in common was that their moms always placed hope in the next boyfriend. That's kind of another reoccurring theme of this broken home story. Maybe the next guy, maybe this guy, hey, I got a new boyfriend. Maybe he'll be good to us. Maybe he'll provide. Maybe he won't drink. Or at least if he does drink, maybe he won't get angry when he drinks. Sadly, maybe he'll leave me alone when I'm in my room alone at night. These little girls are taught in these broken contexts to place hope on the next dude that walks in the door, that this guy will fix it. This guy will be the right guy. This is the guy that's going to make things work for us. And these little girls would experience this revolving door of hope and hopelessness. Another one disappoints. I hope in this one, another one disappoints. I hope in this one, not only does he disappoint, he hurt me. And then they go into this church not going to cry. They go into this church. By the way, it's described in scripture as the bride. And the reason this church is a sweet place to be is because it has a good husband. It has the right man who will never leave her or forsake her. And all of that false hope that their moms continue to live in. Next guy, next guy, next guy. These little girls, little, little messy girls, wander into the little church down the street and they happen, just happen, to wander in to a place run by a good man named Jesus who is faithful and strong and loving and he doesn't leave when we disappoint him. And he just, he runs things well. He's in charge. And he gives himself and gives himself and gives himself. And everything he gives comes up roses. More harvest, more fruit, more joy. And so those, those nursery workers that are making crosses out of popsicle sticks and breaking up graham crackers to feed them to kids, like... Jesus is in them. Those little kids are experiencing the thing every human being needs. A place that's run by the husband, the man, Christ Jesus. And it just blows my mind to think these little girls, they're not the same age at all. They're about 20 years different in age. 
And like I said, this is a common story. See it all over the place. But you can, you can know one thing. Like, you can know this. You can take it to the bank. That in those little children's nursery areas with the construction paper paintings on the wall, they were all, all of them, were sat down at some point and taught, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And that's what makes people glad and generous. We pray.